Tonight's talk is a talk I like to give every year, a version of it. And it's on how uh, the evolutionarily installed traits, which are myriad in the human behavioral uh, array, how very old evolutionarily installed behavioral traits are uh, no longer adaptive to our environments, uh, how they uh, can cause us trouble, and uh, what we can do about them. I do give a lot of talks every year on attachment and early childhood experiences and trauma and how they can, uh, how they influence our adult behavior. But I don't give that many talks on genetic predispositions that are um, due to uh, our evolution, and yet they're very important. So this talk will be a small effort to redress that imbalance. Now, understanding how evolution works is a, offers a profound insight into the human mind and behavior. It offers answers to some of the most fundamental questions we have about what is the nature of human beings, the true nature. And there's a lot of conflicting views, let's face it. Uh, the Christian view is that we are fallen beings tainted by some original sin. I never really quite understood that view, but uh, it is a popular uh, view that somehow human beings are tainted. We've done something wrong even before we were born. Uh, then, of course, there's the Hindu Brahmin view that our lives are determined by karma from previous lives, previous incarnations, and that we are playing out simply uh, largely uh, the results of action, the uh, results of actions that were done in previous lives. And then there's the Hobbesian view. Hobbes was a very important philosopher, uh, that we are selfish creatures that rely on laws and civilization to be tamed. But on the other hand, um, there was Rousseau who said the exact opposite, that we are kind creatures corrupted by civilization. And Freud <laughs> said that we are conflicted driven by all these unconscious urges, aggression and sexual, and also we are uh, uh, wildly uh, influenced by the early childhood relationships. That's certainly uh, partly a view that overlaps with my own. So there's a lot of conflicting views as to what is the true nature of human beings. And evolution uh, offers some profound uh, insights. It's a very important point to note that evolutionary psychology is just one of myriad influences into human behavior. 
you know, my academic background was in psychology, especially continental psychology with an emphasis on depth psychology and attachment. And I'm not a sociologist, but it was so important that it literally, I didn't feel like it represented in a good talk, but whether I'm giving a talk on attachment or polyvagal or the nervous system, the um, evolutionary psychology, these are just uh, some of many myriad influences on human behavior. From uh, that perspective, behavior is shaped by genes being passed down through generations upon generations. And ultimately, from an evolutionary perspective, natural selection doesn't really care about us reaching old age, being happy, even being stronger or more relaxed. What natural selection or evolution cares about is what's called our reproductive fitness, which is another way of saying the genes that get passed on and determine a lot of our behaviors are the ones that allowed us to live long enough that we would attract mates and reproduce. This is not an editorial response. It's just what is, you know, the nature of all genes for all species, even from plants, uh, what, what gets passed down that determines attributes and many of our behaviors are the behavioral traits that allowed us to survive long enough to uh, reproduce. Uh, there's an old evolutionary saying that uh, when you ask the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? The answer is that a chicken is merely the egg's way of making another chicken, of making another egg that it's all about genes. It's not about the actual beings that host the genes, that really all evolution boils down to genes trying to pass themselves on. They're selfish. Um, and you can look at, uh, as uh, evolutionary evolution, uh, both uh, scientists and uh, have shown that everything from the feathers and the songs of birds to perhaps even our culture, our arts, our humor of human beings boil down to uh, essentially uh, sexual selection or reproduction. We have, birds have beautiful plumage to, plumage to attract other birds so that they can reproduce. And the reason why the beautiful plumage gets passed down is because it makes those birds more likely to reproduce. They get, they're more visible. Likewise, human beings that uh, developed humor, arts, creativity were more likely to pass their genes down and so forth. Now, it's so it's really important to understand that all of the core behavioral traits that um, are endemic to our species are not about us being happy. From evolutionary perspective, happiness doesn't matter. Even necessarily being, we think uh, evolution is about survival of the fittest. It's not. It's about 
survival of the reproductive fittest. Um, so while in certain species being the strongest or dominant would make it more likely to pass down uh, genes to, to mate and pass down genes, it's not necessarily true for all species, including in many ways our own. Evolution doesn't care that we're more relaxed. It does care that we are worried a lot and hypervigilant about threats because that hypervigilance would allow us to survive long enough in the environments that we evolved in to pass down genes. So from an evolution perspective, be, being worried, uh, being constantly on guard are traits that got passed down. There's an evolutionary mismatch. Evolution is very gradual, it takes time, but sometimes environments change very quickly. And that's certainly the case with human beings. The earliest iteration, Homo habilis, started about 2.8 million years ago. And, but up until 9,000 years ago, there was varied different social arrangements, but they were all based on sort of small tribal gatherings. And there wasn't really the agricultural advancements that allowed for food storage and allowed for cities. But then suddenly, some 9,000 years ago, there was the advent of modern agriculture and food storage. And suddenly, human beings, which were dispersed and very often nomadic, and were constantly foraging for food, suddenly could uh, create enough food and store it so that we could live in larger and larger gatherings. And the pace of change accelerated um, at a blinding pace. And especially in the last 100 years, if you look 120 years ago, the average worldwide lifespan was 32 years. Now it's 73. So in terms of, um, you know, fast changes in terms of the environment, that's astonishing. We now have vaccines and nutrition and our world, believe it or not, even though it seems that our world is pretty violent and it is unnecessarily so, but it's so much less violent than it was 10,000 years ago or for the bulk of human evolution. So what I'm saying here is that so many of the traits that create our behaviors were established to survive in contexts that are no longer present at all. Our brains no longer match the world we live in. We are, our brains are way, way behind the curve. We are in a period of catching up. Our brains need a much longer period to evolve, to adapt to the new settings. The traits that worked for roughly 2.8 million years, or certainly for the last 300,000 years of Homo sapiens, are no, for the last few hundred years, few thousand at most years, are no longer largely applicable. We are applicable. We are needlessly fearful, self-conscious, greedy, and 
we are oriented to addictive pleasure seeking, all of which are due to the fact that our brains have not caught up with the world that we live in. So I'm going to be going over some uh, five different examples of how of what evolutionary mismatch looks like in our day-to-day lives, how it affects us directly. And then we'll talk about a way to undo this because fortunately the brain, the human brain is neuroplastic. And even though we are born with operating system 1.0 and we need to be up to operating system five, through various tools, we can upgrade the way we perceive and respond to the world around us in a way that will literally uh, help us catch up, help us actually uh, wire our own brains so that they adapt to the world around us. Now, the first delusion that's caused by the evolutionary mismatch is called negativity bias. And I've given entire talks on that. It's the ingrained tendency to dwell on negative stimuli over positive. And of course, there was a reason over the course of our evolution why negativity bias worked, why it was helpful, because we were surrounded by things that could kill us and surrounded by, uh, you know, predators, diseases, Um, we had to keep everything in our minds because there wasn't written literature, there wasn't anything to check to have a database of what foods were safe or not safe. So we had to basically keep in our memory everything we needed to know to stay alive. And the way we did that was by highlighting threats at the expense of remembering things that were good for us. We focused on remembering where and how threats occurred. Uh, We, as a result now, even though we no longer live in that environment at all, we now can, uh, we don't need to have a brain that constantly highlights negative experiences to, we don't need that to survive anymore, but we still do. We give greater weight to bad descriptors when we are given different adjectives about strangers, clinical studies show we believe the negative uh, descriptors. We dwell on unpleasant events, even when there's a similar amount of pleasant or even more pleasant events. When people travel and they come back, they're more likely to focus their attention on things they didn't like about the places they traveled to than the things they did like. Uh, Bad news on uh, the web gets more clicks and it gets more TV views on the evening news. There's a reason why newspapers have that if it bleeds, it leads statement, which essentially sets the editorial policies because the brain, the amygdala responds far more to the negative than to the positive. We remember the negative and we believe the negative more than we do the positive. And all of this leads us to needlessly defensive, critical, judgmental uh, uh, mind states. It distorts 
our perception of the world around us, and it is a complete result of evolution. The second delusion is that we tend to overestimate the amount of pleasure that consuming things will bring. In our ancestral history, tools, food, and clothing maximized our chances of of staying alive long enough to attract a mate and to reproduce. So the Mesolimbic uh, uh, region created a very strong dopamine reward mechanism or pathway that rewarded us for accumulating things. Now, today, we don't need to get a huge jolt of dopamine every time we get a new smartphone or purchase a winter coat, because we probably already have a smartphone or we probably have other winter coats. But we still, for shopping and foraging, we get this huge jolt of dopamine, because in the past, There wasn't a lot of stuff we could accumulate. So it was important to deeply reward us every time we went out. It was risky to go out and accumulate and look for uh, tools, look for food and shelter. So it was important to reward us. Today, we don't need that huge, massive dopamine spike every time we, uh, we go just into a sample sale or whatever it is that uh, we do for shopping. And this also leads to a lot of problems, not just over shopping and, you know, the amount of stuff that is needless that is being produced to keep our dopamine pathways satisfied, but also in the past, um, sugar, sweet things, were very important to be rewarded. So we got a lot of dopamine when we ate something that was sweet because it was filled with nutrition. It would be fruit and fruit was not always easy to come by. So whenever something tasted sweet, we got a blast of neural reward. Today, sweets are everywhere and they're not nutritious. And this is what leads to diabetes and to this you know, uh, to all of the problems that we face with obesity, that we now have brains that reward us for things that are not nutritious and are in no way uh, in our interests. There's an evolutionary reason that, that pleasure doesn't last. If it didn't evaporate, we wouldn't seek advantages again. Uh, we would just stay indoors. So evolution decided that dopamine would be very powerful, very rewarding, and then it would leave very quickly. And that's why we have brains that are so prone to addiction, whether it's food or cocaine or other drugs or uh, shopping or uh, sex, all of which trigger the secretion of dopamine in the mesolimbic Uh, near the striatum, we get this bombardment of feel-good neurotransmitters that that, uh, lift us out of whatever emotional state we're in, and then in a half hour, it's all gone, and it makes us want to have more and more and more. Now, in the past, there wasn't more and more and more. There wasn't 
things you could just easily shop or consume. But today there are. So we can become addicted to the dopamine reward cycle. We envision it, it over, it creates this overestimation of what, of how much our lives can be solved by short-term pleasures. Uh, we envision lasting benefits from when people consider buying a house. They don't envision the headaches that having a house, I guess, can bring uh, because the dopamine reward system, when we're thinking about it, overpowers the long-term or the other circuits of the brain and the dorsal lateral that would go, well, there's going to be downsides too. In other words, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, the things that today produce dopamine were important then, but now they're just in too much abundance. And it means that we now know how to unconsciously hijack our dopamine reward systems. And it leads to these addictive spirals that don't bring us any lasting happiness. The third delusion is that it's important to care what, uh, what everybody else thinks about us. The great psychologist Albert Ellis said that the, probably in his practice, the single most uh, defeating, stressful cognitive, cognitive dissonance was people trying to get everybody to like them and being overly concerned when, so, when a few people were not nonplussed or not happy about us. Um, why do we care so much what other people think about us? Well, for the bulk of evolution, we spent our entire lives in very small clans, maybe six or seven other adults, uh, a few children. And the bulk of our days when we weren't foraging or hunting, we would be living in the same area, totally dependent on the other six adults for our survival. There was safety in numbers. Without being in a clan, we could be picked off by other clans or we could be, we would starve. Uh, we wouldn't collect enough food. Uh, we wouldn't be safe. People who were kicked out of their clan would die. So it was exceedingly important for us to be in good stead with everybody else in the small group that we would spend our entire life. We might see in our entire lives on a regular basis, just five or six people, and that would be it. So for the bulk of our evolution, it was really, really important not to have people angry with us because if they, they were, it would lead maybe to tribal expulsion and then we would die. So we developed very, very powerful circuits in the anterior cingulate cortex. If you want to read about it, Matthew Lieberman's book, Social, goes into just how dominant and powerful that uh, hub is. And also we have orbital frontal lobes as well that uh, process how other people think about us and trigger negative affects if we feel other people don't like us. Now, the problem is today we see 
even if we're being a little isolated, we see so many more people than our ancestors ever did. We, see, we might see people walking out on the street or in the store, or if, you know, we are uh, in an office or wherever, we see so many more people than uh, the brain over evolutionary, uh, evolution was set up to interact with. And so today, if somebody on a bus or uh, on a street corner or in a store or whatever gives us a nasty look, it triggers that dorsal lateral, uh, I'm sorry, anterior cingulate uh, cortex, it triggers, and we get uh, thrown by it. And especially if it's a friend that we run into now and then who doesn't return a text or who gives us a weird look, especially if it's someone in our overall social circle that's unhappy with us, it triggers a certain degree of unrest. Making matters worse is that due to our um, changes in the way we live, in the past, we would live with everybody important to us. So if somebody was angry with us, we'd see them 10 minutes later and we'd have to work it through. But today, if a friend you know, looks at us in a weird way or says a comment that we don't like, we might not see them for weeks or months. And so the opportunity to process and resolve is not there. So we have longer lasting resentments and longer lasting discomfort due to negative interpersonal interactions. The again, the random look of disapproval by a stranger triggers absolutely pointless concern in us. Being socially excluded does not lead to death anymore. We don't have to have these uh, brains that constantly focus our attention to difficult interpersonal interactions. We don't have to have agita or insomnia due to uh, disappointing interactions. That's an evolutionary holdover. Delusion four is that our gut feelings are untrustworthy. The purpose of good and bad feelings was to motivate us to approach things that were safe that we had encountered in the past and to avoid things that were unfamiliar. So again, for example, uh, uh, we can, for a classic example is, uh, unfortunately, if we grow up in family systems that are not exactly um, uh, supportive, empathetic, uh, there's environmental failures, the brain prefers that we connect with and, 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 and be attracted to the exact same kind of person. And our feelings will guide us again and again and again to the same exact kind of individuals that we had when we grew up. Because feelings, gut feelings, very often can be hijacked by 
repetitive experiences, even if those repetitive experiences aren't healthy or aren't good for us. Gut feelings can needlessly push us away from unfamiliar types of people and can dissuade us from taking perfectly safe growth choices in life. Gut feelings when we're offered to do something that's different, that we haven't explored, can create powerful negative somatic markers that discourage us, even though today it's no longer important that we stay doing the same things over and over again. In the past, it was very important that we stuck to routines that kept us alive, no longer today. Finally, the fifth delusion, I think, is uh, probably one of the saddest. Uh, our brains are unfortunately set up to form us-them dichotomies. We view the world, sadly, in terms of our kind of people versus, versus the others. Sadly, it takes about a tenth of a second exposure to the face of a different ethnicity to activate the amygdala. But when we look at faces of the same ethnicity, um, it fails to activate um, the amygdala, but uh, it will activate the fusiform gyrus, which allows us to have a greater sense of identity recognition. By as early as age three, children group people by race and gender and respond to people that look unfamiliar as thems. They also, studies show that children misperceive people of other races as being angrier when they see uh, neutral uh, uh, images of people's facial expressions. They'll mistake the faces of people of different ethnicities as being angrier than they'll perceive the faces of people of the same ethnicity that they are in. The innateness, as Sapolsky has shown in his um, mammoth research, of this us-theming is shown by, one, the speed and minimal stimuli that is required to trigger these unconscious processes. They are too fast and for them to be simply only learned by culture and by the prejudices of one's family system. They're too innate, they're too programmed. They're also, there's massive evidence that this unfortunate um, us-theming is in other primates. Uh, that it's also transglobal, it's transhistorical. So it's very clear that this is a evolutionary holdover as well. And why? Why would it be advantageous to group people in terms of us and them very quickly over the course of evolution? Well, in the past, uh, other people were invariably dangerous. Uh, over the course of our species evolution, there were long periods of time where if uh, you ran into a stranger, somebody you didn't recognize, 
there would be a very strong possibility that they would try to kill you and steal your resources. That when we look at the skulls at archaeological sites, uh, the amount of uh, the preponderance of death occurred through violence. So these were cultures where uh, clans were constantly and individuals were constantly running into people from other clans that looked this different and would be killed. And so it was very important from the perspective of evolution for a while to perceive if somebody was similar to us, an extended family member, or looked different, looked like they were from someplace else. And if so, we would respond negatively. Now, of course, today, this is one of the many myriad reasons, not just because of evolution, because of uh, capitalism, and because of uh, many other factors, but it's one of the factors that has led to the preponderance of racism, xenophobia, and um, so many of our cultural problems. So I hope that this review of the evolutionary traits that are no longer to our advantage has persuaded you that, um, one, that it's an important reflection. Uh, two, I'd like to note that we do have at our disposal tools to undo um, a lot of these ingrained, needless behavioral traits that we should have outgrown, but we haven't due to the fact our brains haven't caught up yet to the relative safety and uh, the uh, how long we live and how uh, different our world is around us today. So the direction our brains are heading is ever increasing sizes of what's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That's a region of the brain that allows for cognitive flexibility. It allows us to inhibit older bottom-up evolutionarily installed traits that are essentially in the midbrain, which is far more uh, the mammalian brain and the earlier brain. So the dorsolateral is allows us to stick to long-term goals of socializing and developing peaceful interactions with others. It's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, when it's activated, is what allows people to stick to diets rather than to grab any food that they can. It allows us to stick to budgets if we want to uh, do that. It allows us to overcome these evolutionary traits. And uh, there's a very, very beautiful way to strengthen the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. But there's another reason before I tell you what that is called um, the insula cortex. And that's another part of the brain that represents all of the body's signals and emotions into a single unified package that can be understood by the frontal cortex. So that's what allows us to have gut feelings, is the insula. And that's how we integrate emotional uh, needs and 
attachment needs and and lower concerns into our reasoning package is due to the insula. So when we strengthen the part of the brain that reads the insula while also strengthening the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which allows us to pause, stop, inhibit action, to overcome some of the older hijacking urges that seek constantly uh, drugs, food, sex, shopping, uh, that are constantly uh, focusing on negative experiences and so forth. How do we strengthen these two regions that are, are the evolutionary future? Well, the answer is, guess what? Mindfulness practice. Voila. It turns out that mindfulness practice actually strengthens those very two regions, especially the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the insula. The gray matter grows. It's been shown that mindfulness practice allows us to develop greater impulse control. It allows us to overcome the urges from the oldest part, bottom-up parts of the brain. And it allows us to develop stronger inhibition of the fight-flight region of the brain, the amygdala. Now, if you'd like to learn more about all this, I have some books that I've read that I would highly recommend. Uh, My favorite evolutionary psychologist is a guy named Robin Dunbar. And he wrote a book called Human Evolution. And even though it's a huge book, it's very readable. He also wrote the great book, How Many Friends Does Do You Need?, which is a book about how the brain was set up or has been evolving to allow us to socialize and overcome, uh, inhibit antisocial impulses of fear and flight and so forth. Sapolsky's masterpiece, Behave. Sapolsky is the great... Uh, behavioral psychologist at the head of Stanford's uh, psychology department, I believe. Steve Stewart Williams is a great evolutionary psychologist who wrote The Ape That Understood the Universe. And finally, from a Buddhist perspective of all this, there's a Buddhist uh, evolutionary scientist writer named Robert Wright, who wrote the book The Moral Animal and other books. So those are some resources in case you'd like to learn more about how evolution is fucking with your brain. And now we're going to do some mindfulness practice so that we can start the wiring to brain 2.0. So thanks for listening. So find a really comfortable seated position And that can be any position you want. It doesn't even have to be seated. If you're preferring to lie down on the floor on a couch or any kind of comfortable chair, that's fine. We're not strict here. I'm the indulgent Buddhist pastor. I like to be super comfortable when I meditate. So find whatever is a 
really relaxed posture. Closing the eyes. Part of evolution is that it wants us to constantly monitor the world around us, looking for threats. So simply the act at times of relaxing and closing our eyes is undoing some of the core installed traits of constantly staying on guard. There's no longer going to be any predator that's going to run into your room and attack you. So we can relax. Nothing's going to happen. It's all going to be good. And we can do some paired muscle relaxation, which is really efficient in allowing us to resolve needless tension in the body. It's probably the most efficient way. So just bring your attention to the toes on your feet, both feet. And clench the toes and then release. And then clench this, the arch of the feet and then soften. And then you can squeeze the calf, calf muscles and then release. And then moving up the body, squeezing the thighs, and then release and soften. And just continue moving up the buttocks, releasing, pushing out the belly, then softening. Can be tightening muscles in the back and then releasing. And then do the arms down to the hands, palms, and fingers. The reason why we do paired muscle relaxation sometimes is because if you simply try to relax muscles, it actually doesn't discharge the action potential that builds up throughout the day that keeps muscles readied to take action. And especially if we have tense, stressful jobs or days, pretty much all of the body can stay at a degree of heightened tension, alertness. But when you tense and release, actually, it's been shown to discharge that muscle readiness. So we actually feel much more relaxed. The body feels much more settled. So after you clench and release the muscles in the face, maybe around the forehead, clenching around the eyes and the nose and then releasing, bring your attention to the dominant sensation that's occurring internally in your body. And that can be 
really any sensation and just acknowledge it, give it room and space to express itself. And then if that area, that sensation, that feeling begins to soften, bring your attention to some part of the body that lets you know whether you're breathing, breathing in or whether you're breathing out. So for me, I feel myself breathing very often in the top of the chest, or sometimes I feel it in the nose or the belly. When I'm breathing in, I feel this slight lift in the pecs of the chest. And then when I breathe out, I feel those muscles softening and floating back down. So we can use whatever area of the body that lets you know whether you're breathing in or out and try to find some specific area or sensation, whether it's air entering the tip of the nose or the mouth or the chest or the belly or the throat. Just find that sensation. That's going to be your home base. Your, as we call it in Buddhist practice, your anchor. Your anchor keeps your attention with a sensation that's present. And you just stay with that until another sensation really wants your attention. That could be a sound arriving from the world around you. It could be a, uh, a slight tension or experience of discomfort. It could be a feeling in the front of the body. Maybe a tight belly or something. It could even be an image or a memory or a thought, but whatever, if it's something that's mental like that, don't climb inside it, just note it. Note what it is. Just observe it from the outside. Oh, here's a thought about what I'm going to eat for dinner or what I'm going to do tomorrow or some conversation I had earlier today. Just note it. Allow it to be there and then bring your attention back to your anchor, the sensation that lets you know whether you're breathing in or breathing out. We're strengthening right here the ability of the mind to interocept what's going on internally, feelings, sensations, thoughts, moods, 
to note, and then to bring back awareness to the breath. And each time you bring back awareness from whatever has sought your attention, try to make the experience of breathing as comfortable as you can, lengthening the out-breath, smoothing the inhalations, keeping the exhalation as long as the inhalation. This simple practice allows us to strengthen the part of the brain that allows us to pause and not react to stimuli, allows us to develop emotion regulation. So becoming aware of things as they arise, noting them, observing them for a moment, and then bringing your attention back again and again to your anchor. And of course, there'll be times when you'll get trapped in a virtual reality of thoughts, and that's okay. Just each time you realize that you've been lost in thought, just go back to your anchor. It doesn't matter if we have to do this 20 times or 200 times in a meditation. Each time you come back to your anchor, you're strengthening the region of the brain that allows us to inhibit old impulses.
So at this point, to practice some of the core strategies of increasing our cognitive capability of overriding old impulses. Um, bring to mind one of two things, either one, something that's very addictive in your life that is difficult to say no to, an impulse towards food or social media or shopping or something, sex or whatever, something that the allure of is very strong and that we'd like to develop some ability to override some of these very old flooding of dopamine pathways that override sometimes our ability to stop. Or B, bring to mind somebody who has disappointed us or seems to be angry or unhappy with us. Practice is going to be to override that tendency of being concerned about, overly concerned about what making everyone like us, that evolutionary holdover of needing to manage everyone's feelings and keep them happy all the time. So whether it's an addictive urge or a concern about social rejection from someone, just hold an image in your mind that would trigger old impulses and just use your capability of observing with your insula and your other interoceptive regions of your brain, the ability to observe how feelings arise that influence your choices. The subtle feelings that often slide beneath our awareness but dictate how we behave. The feelings of comfort or discomfort in the body that dictate what food we choose to eat, whether we binge on TV or do something healthy. Just bring your awareness to whatever is activated in the body while you hold these triggering images. If it's an image of somebody who we think is angry or doesn't like us, just hold their image and just see how that affects the feelings in the front of the body, the belly, the chest, the throat, the face. All of these feelings will impel us to a people-pleasing, fawning, 
response or to a angry, resentful stance. Just learning how to observe and watch the feelings, give them space, soften around them, and not let the old feelings activated by much more ancient parts of the brain to learn how to be with these feelings without acting on their behalf. So when you're ready, I'm going to ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, just take your time and bring awareness to the world around you, integrating your internal experience with the surroundings.